welcome back to Information Revolution, a podcast about information for people working in the industry, working with information, thinking about the future of it, and what maybe that future should be. I'm Michael Upton. I'm a director of MetaTaxis New Zealand, a little consultancy based in Wellington. And I'm Judy Verno. I'm an information architect, and I also work for MetaTaxis in New Zealand. Right, and I'm Carl Melrose. I work for Castle Point Systems in Canberra. Um, just a quick disclaimer, my views are my own. So, Michael, what are we here to talk about today? This one. We're here today to talk about the stories that we might need to tell in our jobs. So this is following on from the end of the previous episode where we were talking about uh, managing, uh, sorry, not managing necessarily, but engaging with your executive. And we talked there about um, the power of being able to tell a good story. Um, so we thought that that was actually worth uh, digging into a little bit further um, as part of those kind of people skills or the people stuff. Um, and I guess I will start by telling a story, which is that uh, when I first started out and doing consulting, I thought that I really liked doing delivery work, but that I didn't like doing sales. And I... Um, then did a little course on what they call consultative selling, which is basically selling yourself through consultation um, and basically understood then that actually delivery and sales are actually very, very similar activities and that you are trying to understand what people need, listening to them really closely and then typically telling them compelling stories that help them to understand what you could do to help them or to actually deliver on that, you know, to actually help. And I guess there's a kind of stereotype around selling uh, or, or a nervousness about um, basically that it's gross, you know, basically this idea that it might be kind of underhand or it's slimy or that you're trying to trick someone. And I think to me that says bad sales rather than, you know, a problem with sales itself. So I think that effective selling is always got to be about integrity. It's got to be about maintaining integrity. It's got to be about being honest and being truthful but why we're here today i guess is because an aspect of doing that is being able to tell compelling stories so the second thing i wanted to sort of weave in in the intro um, as part of this is that a few years back i read a um, really good uh, book that i think was pretty popular at the time um, daniel kahneman's thinking fast and slow and in that he pretty much makes the case that human beings are pretty rubbish as statisticians. We're not very good with probabilities. We're not very good at looking at numbers and going, okay, I feel it. And so I'm going to make a decision based on um, what these numbers tell me. We're actually much better at narrative, much better at um, relating to a story and going, oh, great, you know, based on that I can sort of put myself in the shoes of the sort of person in the story and I can or I will act on what I understand to be true based on that story. So um, it kind of hits home more basically is, is kind of one of the one of the aspects of the book. Mm, and I, it's a brilliant book. I mean, I, I've read it a couple of times and that one of the things that really sticks out for me and that is that, um, and I I'm, think it's in that book, it's either that or another one on the same topic that I've read, but they talk about a whole bunch of um, experiments that have been done with people who have had traumatic brain injuries and who are now no longer capable of experiencing emotions. 
And the thing that's really interesting about that is that those people can also no longer make decisions. They are absolutely incapable of basically doing anything. And what's really interesting about that is that, you know, the thing that's always been drummed into me is that, you know, people people make decisions emotionally and then they justify them logically. And if we believe that research, what it actually says is that people don't, you know, people don't just make decisions emotionally. They're actually incapable of making decisions unless they're experiencing an emotion. And one of the other really interesting things about storytelling is that there's been some great research done about, you know, with, with fMRIs, functional magnetic resonance imaging. And when you tell a story for some, to someone, um, they actually start to experience the same sorts of emotions that you do. And it's interesting because, you know, we were talking about it before this, you know, you, you, if you tell a story about trauma, um, or something that, you know, w- was really impactful and really quite frightening for you, people will also start to feel a sense of that, that fear and that trauma. Um, and, you know, that one of the things that people often do is that, you know, say that they're the stories you've got to tell, you know, the ones where bad things happened. But the interesting thing about that for me is that I, I think we've got to tell the stories about, you know, they've got to be stories about, um, you know, cause-effect relationships, you know, but we did this and bad, or we didn't do this and bad things happened versus we did good thing. we did this and then good things happened. I think the we did this and then good things happened ultimately is a much more compelling story. And they've actually found that in research as well. They've found that when it comes to remembering the details and understanding deeply, you know, you've got to be telling positive stories for people to really remember that stuff. And the thing that actually happens, and I think this is in Thinking Fast and Slow as well, is that when you tell a story about trauma and pain, people start to experience a little bit of that trauma and pain, and they have it. Your body actually releases cortisol and adrenaline um, in response to that, which it's a, it's it's fight or flight. And when you go into fight or flight, the hot, one of the things that happens is that your brain actually blinkers you. So you know you go from seeing all of these things to being very narrowly focused. You actually lose the ability to assimilate new information. And so you know, if we're in that thing again, where you know. What we said last week was, you know, if you can make the decision, you make the decision. If you can't, you've got to sell it to someone. If you're selling something to someone and they're scared and you're trying to scare them with something, well, what actually happens is that the the, the information that they can assimilate gets blinkered and all of a sudden the only things they can see are the things that they already know because when you go into fight or flight, you don't want to sit down and analyse all of your possible um, you know, ways of dealing with that problem, what you actually want to do is you just want to use a route that you've used before to get yourself out of the problem. And that's things you already know. That's really interesting. Really, yeah, really it is, interesting. isn't it? <laughs> I never thought of that. I think it quite often happens that we end up telling horror stories, but you're saying that that's going to do exactly the wrong thing to the people listening that they're going to they're going to go oh no don't want to know don't want to know i'm running yeah. away from this as it were you've got to come up with the good the good stories and, and i mean haven't you ever had that experience where you start telling someone a story about bad things that could happen and they just don't want to talk to you and, and they, they want to go and you know that they, they all of a sudden have somewhere else they want to be <laughs> and they want to end the conversation and like i'm sure we've all had that experience but there's actually but there's actually a cognitive basis for that. And, you know, I'm not a neuroscientist, obviously. You know, so <laughs> consult your neuroscientist before you, uh, you know, take any advice from this podcast. Um, 
but but that's actually you know there is actually neuroscience that supports you know telling positive stories and then working with people on those things so and do yeah. we all do we all have a, a bag full of positive stories that we can tell that are going to really chime with the people that we're talking to I think that's the it's 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 finding the story that fits your circumstance or their circumstance mm. rather isn't it so that yeah. that really will mean something to them yeah for sure it, it's it's interesting you raise that I, I I actually do just wonder whether how much alignment you've got to have before someone can experience the positive emotions as well but that's you know that's a big question for another neuroscience podcast I think as the, opposed to the our real neuroscience success. podcast <laughs> <laughs> The, the positive stories that I can easily think about are ones where I've been doing information architecture for publishers who really care about information in a very particular kind of way because it's their product or their service or their business. Um, and so they really understand that it needs to be well-structured. It needs to be described in ways that are going to uh, help people find stuff. It means that they're going to spend as much time, well, maybe not quite as much time as they need to, but a lot of time on understanding the end users and how they're going to be looking for stuff, how they want to use it, what it is they want to find, all of that good stuff. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm currently working with a um, health service provider, information provider, and it's crucial for them that their end users can find what they need really quickly with no difficulty at all because it's you know it's crucial that they don't waste time mm. but that's yeah that's a public a publisher as it were you'd think or you would hope that people in in government organizations and other organizations would care that much about their users finding stuff quickly and accurately but they don't so we yeah. need to well i i don't find know the right stories yeah, I don't know whether I'd, I'd agree they don't care about that, but I, I think, you know, I, I think this is some of the stuff we talked about last week, you know, where we were talking about, you know, how credible you are, um, you know, with a value proposition of some kind. Ultimately, that's what we were talking about. Yes, you know, yes. I think I think the problem is that I think we've got, particularly in government, you know, because we've got some particular ideas about classification scheme design and file plans that, Really, they're based in an old paradigm where someone who didn't understand the business process needs to be able to find stuff associated with it at a later date. And so I think we've got a lot of people who have been told that, you know, they'll be able to find things better with record, you know, with good records management, et cetera, et cetera. But their entire experience of records management has been systems that they don't understand and don't know where to put things in and can't find things. And I mean, I think there's a, I think you have to think about, um, you know, do your stories align to the story that you've got to tell in, in your organisation at the moment? Because, you know, yeah. in lots of organisations, that is the, you know, that's the kind of trend. And if you all of a sudden, you know, try and do something that's at a right angle to what people's actual lived experience is, you know, we talked a little bit last week, I think, about WIFM, you know, and where that's gone wrong for people in the past because, you know, it's you'll have this point in a story where someone's saying, you know, someone comes to you and they tell you a story, you know, because people, we are storytelling animals. You know, one of the other things from thinking fast and slow is we've got a whole part of our brain that's about narratives. But people will come to a team and they will tell you a story and their story will often be something along the lines of, well, 
you know, I go to the record system and I don't know where to put things and I can't find things and I hate using it and I just don't understand it and I've been trying to use it for 10 years and just can never find anything. And then somebody will use, you know, WIFM, which is a story. You know, WIFM is what's in it for me is a story about how if you do something, you will get these benefits out of it. Um, but, you know, then somebody will say, well, you've just got to, you know, here's all the things that records management's for. It's for findability and, you know, compliance and all these great things. And, you know, get to the end of the story and the person says, yeah, that's that's what I want. And then the action that comes out of the story is, well, you've just got to use the system that you just spent me, spent 10 minutes telling a story about how it's completely unusable. And I think you've got to think about, you know, what, what your stories um, align you to or place you in opposition to as well. You know, and that problem of I think a lot of the time because of the story that records is historically told in organisations, you know, it's seen as in opposition to getting things done. You know, records management isn't about getting things done. It's something else. And it shouldn't be like that, but I think it is. And so I think you've got to think about the narratives that are in your organisation at the moment because if you try and tell a story that's in opposition to the dominant cultural narrative in your organisation, then, you know, that dominant cultural narrative has a huge amount of momentum. And you might be able to say, I mean, it's simple things. I'm sure you guys have got better examples than me, but, you know, it would be simple things like, you know, if there's this, if there's a, a document that everybody references all the time, you know, just a key document of some kind, well, you know, and you've got problems with people always going to the wrong version. Well, if we put, if we start with that document and we put that one document in this specific place and we give people a really easy way to find it, then we've started to change the narrative in a direction we want. You know, the, the story becomes, well, we put that one document in here and then that got easier to find. So maybe then we can start to believe a story about how everything could be easier to find if we worked with you on it. Yeah, I think, I mean, it really does tie back to credibility and what we were talking about last time. You know, I mean, step one, if you're thinking, if you're listening to this and thinking about, well, what do I need to do, might be go and make those stories, you know, go and do some positive things that then you can talk about. Um, I mean, notwithstanding that, that uh, Carl used examples of kind of... Um, hypotheticals basically you know like like the whiff my idea is basically a kind of a an imagining imaginary story in the sense that it's basically saying here's picture picture that if you did this then this will happen rather than actually telling a story that's based in the past but still um i think the more powerful or more convincing story is one that's based on you know lived experience you can turn around and go hey there was this time when this thing happened yeah and I think one of those examples, which is, I mean, slightly, slightly different, but just, um, just one of the kind of stories that I've carried around with me in terms of thinking about information and records management is that when I was first sort of sole charge as a records manager in a small organisation, um, that organisation ran all of its records or managed its information and records um, primarily in a CRM, so a customer relationship management tool. So it was actually Microsoft CRM, which is now Dynamics. Um, and it worked really well. You know, people found the information they needed. Um, they found it in a reliable way. Um, they could do the things that they needed with it because it had interfaces and forms and things that guided how they put information in or how they updated what was there. Um, and it, um, you know, for me, it's a story with a really strong message that um, that the system 
uh, doesn't determine the outcome, you know, in the sense that the technology doesn't determine the outcome. Like there were decisions made about how that thing was architected. There were decisions made about um, understanding the business, I guess, you know, understanding the process and understanding people's needs. And um, there was a whole lot of just practicality involved and compromise involved that um, achieved a better outcome than I think you would get if you just kind of um, stick kind of rigidly to a particular set of expectations, such as we must have an electronic document and records management system, and a CRM is not one of those. Um, but it's a, you know, it's a story that um, I tell people and that I tell myself around, um, around sort of what matters in terms of um, mm. building good solutions. So yeah, it's so, uh, one of the examples. Judy? How, how, do, how do use cases then, actually I can answer this question for myself, but um, <laughs> thinking about the kinds of use cases that we put together in order to show what the system or what the, I mean, I mean, system in the broader sense processes, uh, structures, way stuff's et cetera, organized. et cetera. How, yeah, the way stuff's organized, what this can do for me. So as a whatever, you know, I can now do this, I can mm-hmm. find that. So that's those are good stories about mm. the future. But we do also need those stories of the past. When someone did this, it was great. I think I think you do need because on the one hand you're kind of you're promising something in the future. Yeah, we can show you these use cases and it'll do it for you, but there's no guarantee that it will. Whereas if you can tell a story from the past where it did happen, I think that's a lot more persuasive. Myself, I, I think, think you know. I mean, no, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, but but I think it's a two part process. You know, if you want someone to change. Um, and you want to be the person who helps them change like that, you know, you've got to tell them a story about them getting something that they actually want to get. But Warren Buffett tells a story about um, getting advice from taxi drivers, you know, and it's got financial advice from taxi drivers. And and both of you kind of had a bit of a laugh at that before we even started talking, you know. So, you know, you get into a cab and, you know, your cab driver's giving you financial advice. Well, they're not credible to give you that financial advice. But, you know, if, if – um, I had a little interesting experience of that because there was a, a guy, I got an Uber to the airport one morning when I was living in Sydney and the guy pulled up in this like $300,000 Mercedes and I just looked at it and went, there's like something doesn't square here. And it turns out that the guy was just a bit of an insomniac and, um, you know, he, he had a, a business in financial advice and just used to drive people, you know, just used to do a little bit of Uber driving in the morning because it helped him clear his head and gave him some people to talk to. Well, this was his story anyway. You know, whether it was true or not, I don't know. But, you know, that person may be a little bit more credible, you know, and I think that – so I think, you, you know, you've got to do two things. You've got to tell those stories about the future with people. But then you also have to back it, you know, your stories about the things you've done in the past are how you become credible enough for those people mm. to trust you so they'll actually move forward and do them. And, yeah. you know, I mean, I, I you know, I, th- I think you've just got to be consistent with that stuff. You know, I mean, one of the things that I think is interesting about the um, authenticity movement at the moment is that, you know, I, I don't think that people necessarily want people to be authentic. You know, I think what they want is they want them to be consistent. You know, it's kind of like the person who, you know, the violent uh, person who likes to throw their furniture around the building, you know, you'd like them to go and be authentic somewhere else. 
you know, yeah, whereas yeah. what we generally want is I think we want people to be consistent. I think that's actually a challenge. You know, if you're trying, if you're coming into a new organ, a, a new team that, you know, hasn't necessarily had a, a history, it has, has had a history of being a compliance function and not necessarily of helping people achieve business, you know, b- business results. You know, so finding a story that, that allows you to change the, the current understanding and cultural narrative there and tell that story, I think that's quite difficult. Um, mm. But, you know, I mean, the other thing too is you can co-opt other people's stories. Um, you know, like I've got a, oh, I've got yeah. a friend of mine <laughs> catching up for dinner with next week. Um, the, the CIO at a government agency and, um, you know, this one happened to, this government agency happened to manage fisheries in the state that they were in, um, you know, that's, Northern Territory, because you know the story won't make sense otherwise. Um, and you know he got a, um, I, I, and, and we've got to, we've got to remind me to put the YouTube a link to him telling this story in the show notes. But he tells a story about what I think is the greatest information management, one of the greatest record stories ever. But it's told as a bit of a tech story because that's what you know he's a bit more of a tech kind of guy. But, you know, there's a, a bit of a problem that you've got, you know, if you need to manage the fisheries and, you know, Darwin Harbour happens to be one of the fisheries, well, the way that they actually um, generally uh, get fish counts out of these sorts of fisheries is that you put a PhD student in the fishery and you swim them on a path across the fishery and you get them to count the number of the specific species of fish you see. One, two, three, four. (laughs) Yeah, like seriously. But, you know, you need someone, you need somebody with that kind of background to do that because they're the only people who can actually recognise the fish. Now, you know, if you think about my favourite section uh, of uh, ISO 15489, you know, Section 7, which, you know, basically asks you to... Everybody's favourite section. Everyone's favourite section, which basically asks you to use um, records, techniques and practices to manage business risks. Well, if you've got to manage a fishery, the biggest risk, the, the, the I cannot think of a bigger risk to your ability to manage that fishery than not knowing how many fish are in it. So, like, this is a classic records risk. If you don't have a record of how many fish were in that fishery at a point in time, then any intervention you make, you're going to be incapable of understanding whether it was effective or not. So, like, this is big R risk for records. And so, Rowan, this guy, this friend of mine did a, a project with Microsoft where basically they went and got Microsoft's computer vision technology and they got a, a GoPro camera and they put it on a stick, which I think they called a bob, and they, and they swam it across Darwin Harbour and then they got Microsoft Computer Vision to, you know, they trained it to be able to recognise specific types of fish. Now, it sees it sees flawlessly. So if the fish shows up on that on that camera, it gets counted. Um, and it's a great records project because they improve their ability to keep records to help them manage the fishery. But the story gets told as a tech story. For me, it's one of the greatest record stories I've ever heard. You know, there's also another uh, another CIO that I know here locally who um, he's in an organisation now that um, manages uh, finance for, for people who normally couldn't get it, you know, from a bank or something like that. And, you know, that involves reverse mortgages and, um, you know, finance for people on low or inconsistent incomes and those sorts of things. But they've had a few problems over the last, you know, several years where, you know, the ombudsman, um, you know, essentially people have been taking the loans that they've got to the the financial ombudsman to say, you know, there's something not right here. And strangely, you know, you get people with on, on low incomes and, you know, if they're going to get a loan for, you know, a couple of hundred thousand dollars, they keep amazing records. And what's actually been happening is that they've actually been finding that the people 
getting the loan have been keeping better records than the agency have or the agency hasn't had records to substantiate assertions that it's made when it's been awarding the loans. And so the, the financial ombudsman's been basically saying, well, you know, you just need to write off all of the interest associated with this record. You know, someone, they'll still have to repay the principal, but you're going to have to write off all the interest. And what that's actually doing is it's having the effect of, of, of retrospectively making the agency unprofitable because, you know, they're, they're sitting there and they're saying, well, this loan's been out for 20 years, but now we have to give back all of the profits that we've made over the last 20 years and just let the person repay the principal. So that's a bit of an awkward conversation for the head of the agency because they now have to go back to the minister that they report to and say, you know, we were going to deliver, I don't know if, you know, pulling numbers out of the air, you know, $20 million of, of revenue, you know, into the, the government, you know, P&L this year that you could have used to finance, you know, potholes or something that's important to you. And now we're actually going to need you to give us $10 million because all of these loans that we thought were profitable we're now going to have to write off the interest. And it's it's rec- it's just pure records, you know. The record keeping when they wrote the loan wasn't up to scratch. And so it's actually it's actually winding up all of the profits of the agency retrospectively. And I'll we'll have to po- I'll give I'll send you some links afterwards so that we can post it in the show notes because Duncan tells this story. He told it on a Rimper panel that that I ran um, and he tells it really well. But you know, you can tell those kinds of stories but you've got to look really hard. But ultimately, they're, you know, this is why I'm really focused on the die-car model, you know, at the moment um, and probably have been for a year now. You know, the die-car model, data, information, knowledge, actions and results. You know, basically what it says is that our results are based on the actions we take, the quality of our results. Quality of our actions is based on the quality of our knowledge because that's really about how we make decisions quality of our knowledge and our ability to use it is based on the quality of the information and data that we feed it. And if you use that model, you can talk really consistently about um, how the quality of your information impacts on the quality of your results. And like I didn't invent this model, right? It's in the the Information Management Body of Knowledge, the 2018 edition, it's in there. Um, but if you can always tell your stories along that line, pretty soon people will will get used to you telling stories like that and they'll start to listen to them, and that's what they'll expect you to do. I mean, I think that consistency is really important. But you know, these aren't you know these aren't stories about how things that might happen to future generations. You know, they aren't you know some unknown person at some unknown point in the future. Um, you know, m- might want to know this stuff. It's look, we're going to get called up to the financial ombudsman at some point by some of these loan holders, and if our record keeping is not squeaky clean. You know, we're going to have to write this off. Or, you know, in the case of another agency that I've worked with, you know, um, if we have this type of disaster, you know, the coroner is going to come down here and they are going to launch a coronial investigation. And if we've stuffed this up, you know, there is strict liability here and you as directors are going to have to pay big fines and face jail terms. You know, and actually that's the case with a lot of work cover legislation now in oh, yeah. many countries. So that's a that's a typical kind of horror story, isn't it? These are the things that can go wrong and this is the very serious impact <laughs> it's going to have on you. But um, I was, they're the stories I was just saying, don't tell these yeah, ones. Exactly, yeah, exactly. <laughs> well, I, I was also going to say that your, your fish story ties in so nicely with the conversation that we had a few sessions ago about knowing what you've got. Yeah. And Importance of yeah, doing a discovery piece, and those those around discovery is always good stories that that 
that I can tell because I've never done one of those and I've done an awful lot of them where the client hasn't gone, oh, that's really interesting. I didn't know that. It always yeah. tells them something that they didn't yeah. know. So there's plenty of good stories to, to be told around that. Kind of a, um, in, in terms of that thing about sort of finding fodder for good stories, you know, that's probably a great place to start is actually just find out some more about what you've got and then tell a compelling story around it. And Carl, yeah. describing Daikar again, I mean, one way of thinking about Daikar is as a storytelling model. You know, it's like, here's a framework for telling a story from start to finish and basically write it up, tick the boxes, go, oh, yeah, True. cool. I can now tell a story to someone else about if we knew more about this, then we could get this result, you know, and, and or we could act in this way. So, yeah, the the other thing that I was thinking, um, uh, Carl, when you were describing the story about um, managing loans and things and about people you know, individuals out there, members of the public um, managing decent records is that um, I think there's a kind of a theme in there or a kind of another little tip is that um, often you can think about the way that people handle information outside work and find positive things to say there. And to give a specific example of that, a story, um, I've found yeah, that I in terms of working on the design of new systems, thinking about architecture of systems and people's finding requirements and things. If you're trying to introduce people to the idea of searches and um, filtering search results and um, working in a kind of faceted way where you can flip things around or even about the value of tagging things and the idea that you could find information through multiple ways, e-commerce is actually our friend here. Like there are so many easy stories to tell about, you know, mm -hmm. you went on. Oh, yeah a clothing site and you could filter by, you know, Absolutely. size or gender or, you know, the type of item and you could flip the results to find the things that you wanted if you wanted to browse or you could do a search based on the keywords that you knew. Like these are things people go, oh, yeah, of course, I've done that a million yeah. times. And you go, great. Yeah. So all we're saying is let's and, do that. And, and yeah. so when you spent four hours looking for the information to, you know, make a good decision and yeah. then you couldn't find it so you didn't make a good decision, well, you know, here is a way that we can do it. And all you have to do to get us in a position where we can do that is X, Y, and Z. Yeah, yeah. Great story. And, yeah, and, and the analog's really good. You know, it's analogous yeah. to the other thing that you do all the time. I mean, I think that's that. We were kind of touching on that a little bit when I was trying to talk about, you know, small departures. Sorry, Michael. <laughs> Sorry, I just had one more, one more analogy that's, that's exactly around shifting finding behavior and things that I found really valuable to people. Heaps of people for many years have used Outlook in a way that is driven around um, what I would call sorting behavior, sorting on columns. So I need to find some stuff. Oh, it's from that person. Okay, I'll just sort my inbox on from, mm. and I will now be mm -hmm. where I need to to find the information based on what I've got in my head. Yeah. And it's like another example of an everyday analogy that people um, might might help people to feel more comfortable if they're shifting the way that they're handling documents, basically, is really what I'm thinking, because lots of people are still very wedded to folders, and folders can be absolutely fine, and a lot of people still use folders in email, but there are also these kind of, um, it's just another example where I think there's, you know, there's an existing analogy that you can draw upon and see whether it resonates with people. So it's another another yeah, aspect of storytelling is finding those it's analogies. It's a really good, a really, really good analogy because you have got, you know, as you say, the columns you can sort on yeah. and you can use folders. So you can have a good 
if you do it right, then using the both of them can get you absolutely maximum findability. Absolutely. And you've got search as well. You can can search within. Yeah, no, it's a great analogy. You're basically working with metadata day in, day out. The only thing is you're not being asked to add it, which I think is, you know, certainly Mm. certainly a key thing when we're working through design. Yeah. Cool. All right. So uh, let's wrap that up there. I think we've told some good stories, as we should have. Um, this is actually going to be our last episode of the year. So this comes out as episode number 10, I believe, of Information Revolution. So thanks, everyone who's listened in. The feedback you've received and stuff has been really valuable and um, really uh, rewarding. So uh, we will catch you in the new year. We're going to take a summer break um, and should have an episode towards the end of January or start of Feb. And we're taking suggestions, so, you know, if you've got things, you know, topics you'd like us to cover, those yeah, sorts good of things, point. we'll yeah. have a little bit of thinking time over Christmas, so yeah. <laughs> please send them in. Awesome. Or okay. join us. Yeah, yeah, come and join <laughs> us. Tell us, tell us you yeah. want to come and hang out for one of these. Yeah. Cheers, all. See ya. Happy Christmas. Merry Christmas. <laughs>